links to the things that we've you talked should also about say episode. sorry 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 you should also say that we did the hobbit when did we do the hobbit oh it was, it was, first, like, it was like it was like episode <laughs> four wasn't it yeah oh <laughs> we've done so many of these i've forgotten um, <laughs> it is that's episode right i had not read the hobbit four. before we did it's the three or four oh. it's four Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we are discussing the film The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the extended edition. And we're joined by special guest Cassandra Fredrickson from The Lord of the Rings Minute. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Cassandra. Uh, could you describe for our listeners what The Lord of the Rings Minute is? Um, Lord of the Rings Minute... Uh... Me and my co-host, uh, Norman, we watch every single minute of a movie, so in this case, Lord of the Rings, and then every episode we talk about that minute. So we're currently, um, as of this recording, we are currently 65 minutes into the movie, and they just recently left the Shire, so it's going to be an undertaking. <laughs> 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 60 minutes in isn't quite as far in on Lord of the Rings extended edition as it is on some other films. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and each episode is like 20 minutes about, right? Yeah, we try and average. Um, there are some outliers. Um, I I like to talk about random tangents, so sometimes they'll be like <laughs> the occasional 35-minute episode. But each one averages about 20. That's awesome. Our podcast specializes in tangents, so awesome. we'll be right at home here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it, it drops uh, Monday through Friday, right? So Yes. It, it comes out at a rapid pace, but they're short enough to digest in daily fashion. So yeah, listeners, we recommend for... Lord of the Rings Minute. Thank you. Okay, so today we'll be talking about the 2001 film, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and we're, we're discussing the extended edition. It's adapted from a J.R.R. Tolkien novel, uh, and the ad- adaptation is done by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson. And it's directed by Peter Jackson. This film is part of a trilogy of fantasy films in which Frodo Baggins and his friends try to destroy an evil ring. Uh, we'll be talking about many of the characters. So... But let's just cover the whole cast real quick. Or, I mean, the main cast <laughs> okay. of, of this. I mean, typically we try to focus on one, but this is one of those situations where I don't know how we'd possibly do that. So Elijah yeah. Wood is Frodo Baggins. Ian McKellen is Gandalf. Viggo Mortensen is Strider or Aragorn. Uh, Sean Astin is Samwise Gamgee. Liv Tyler is Arwen. Uh, let's see. Who else do we need? To, uh, Kate Blanchett is Galadriel. John Rhys-Davies is Gimli. Billy Boyd is Pippin. Dominic Monaghan is uh, Mary. And Orlando Bloom is Legolas. And let's go ahead and mention Christopher Lee is Saruman. And Hugo Weaving as <laughs> Elrond. And Sean Bean is Boromir. And I think we're probably good at that point. <laughs> yeah. For this one. The casting <laughs> so on this is... We don't have to get into circus yet. The casting on this is crazy. Like... These are really, really good actors. <laughs> like, top to bottom. Uh, yeah, this is... Um, I think everything in this film is just the perfect example of, like, hundreds of creative people at the peak of their game working together on one single project, and what you get is pretty magical. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from the set design to the costuming uh, to, to the actors and the writing. Like, it's all working towards a singular vision of presenting this story, and it it's one of those examples of, of like, capturing lightning in a bottle for that. Uh, in filmmaking. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So uh, I guess th- this is the part where typically we talk about how we came to this work. So Cassandra, let's ask you, uh, how did you come to either Lord of the Rings in general or this film in particular, however you want to approach oh. it? Okay. Um, so my dad um, was very big on reading and instilling that love of reading in us. Um, so when I was very little, I think I was like four or five, he would read um, The Hobbit to us. And... I really enjoyed The Hobbit, and when I turned um, 13, unfortunately I missed the movies in theaters, but the only reason I missed the movies in theaters is because my dad was a book purist, so he's like, you need to read the book first before you see the movie. (laughs) So um, I was like a 13-year-old girl, so I was really into Orlando Bloom at the time, so I was like, okay, I need to read these books so I can watch (laughs) Orlando Bloom in this movie. And I reread The Hobbit, and then I leapt into Lord, um, to Fellowship of the Ring, and the writing is so much different. And it took me forever to get through Fellowship. But by the time I reached the end of Fellowship, I think I had an appreciation for it. So the other two came, like, easier and quicker. And then I was allowed to watch the movie. So uh, I watched the movie, and I loved it. And to this day, it's probably the best book-to-movie adaptation I think I've ever seen. Yeah, because it's not um, it's not a page-to-page, you know, page-to-screen adaptation right. by any sense <laughs> of the word, uh, but they capture so many of the, the key themes mm-hmm. and the essence of, of Tolkien's story. Uh, Todd, what about you? Um, I was uh, serving an LDS mission in Spain when this came out, and I was devastated that <laughs> I could not watch oh, it. No. But it was against it was against the rules for missionaries to watch movies. So I would just talk to people about the movie, and I would say, did you see the movie? And they would say, yes. And I would say, what did you think? And they would say, it was amazing. And I'd be like, whoa, because I still wasn't going to be home for like another year and a, a bit. So I watched this after I got home, which would have been in 2003, probably at your house, Joe. Did we get together and watch this together? I think so, yes. I know you definitely came over to uh, Joseph and my house for the second one. Yeah, and I probably hadn't seen the first one, so <laughs> I think that was when that was when I saw it. Um, yeah. And I loved it. I read The Lord of the Rings when I was a kid. Um, I read The Hobbit, and then I read The Lord of the Rings, and I loved it. It is ha- always has been since I read it, like one of my favorite books and one of my favorite stories. I have not reread it a million times. <laughs> So, and I haven't watched this film a, a thousand times, so I don't know it as well as uh, other people probably on this podcast. <laughs> but um, but I really, really do love the story, and uh, and these characters are really like close to me. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, similarly, I was in Mexico and did not see it in theaters. But when I got back uh, <laughs> at home, this was one of the first movies that I saw was this extended edition, but I've never seen the theatrical cut. You no, know, I haven't film. either. I've only seen the DVD extended release. I, I remember us like sitting you down probably within a week after you got back. <laughs> and we said, this is, this is one of the first things you like, like here's a list of things you need to see. And this is at the top. <laughs> you didn't need to twist my arms. Uh, yeah. I'd read the books when I was in high school, uh, enjoyed the books much like that though. I like, I, there are other fandoms that I was more into uh, than Lord of the Rings. So I didn't, have like the trivia knowledge or like the obsessive familiarity with it. So I was definitely like surprised by points in the film because I didn't remember everything because I'd only read the books once. I've read the books once more since then. Uh, but this film is one of the, like I said earlier, it's just one of the better achievements in filmmaking that I, mm-hmm. that I've seen. 
All right, so some trivia uh, about The Lord of the Rings. Or I guess before we get to the trivia, Todd, do you want to do the ad read? Yeah, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. There are over 180,000 titles that await you there to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or if you're going old school, your MP3 player. You might still have one around from 2001. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, some trivia about this film. Uh, I, I I tried to keep it light because there's so much <laughs> trivia, particularly because the extended editions have like these appendices that get into yeah. trivia about the making of you know one side character's weapon in great mm-hmm. detail. Uh, but um, the Lord of the Rings film trilogy it was filmed largely in New Zealand, which is now easily confused with Middle Earth. <laughs> it has a 91% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. And and Best Supporting Actor for Ian McKellen, and it won four awards for Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects, Best Makeup, and Best Original Score. And particularly the original score. I'm all on board for that. I love the score to this movie. Uh, It made $871 million at the Worldwide Box Office, and I can only imagine how much it has made on DVD sales since then. uh, It was the second highest grossing film of the year. Behind, anyone know? Any guesses what it was behind? In 2001? Yes. I'm, um, I'm staring at the notes, so I will. I'll, I'll. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. 2001. I was 11. Oh, Harry Potter. Yeah. Harry Potter oh. and the Sorcerer's Stone was number one. Yep. That is correct. Uh, I'm not going to spend the entire trivia section discussing Christopher Lee. I could. That man's life is amazing. He was in like a heavy rock band oh, in his he's 80s. So cool. He lived. In he his lived 80s? the James Bond life. Yeah. He was a spy. Yeah. Yes, he was a spy. There, there's a story uh, during the filmmaking where Peter Jackson said to him, I need you to imagine what like a knife going to a human body would sound like. And he just looked at Peter Jackson and said, I don't have to yeah. imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just go read up on Christopher Lee. That man is amazing. All right. Uh, a couple other bits of trivia. Tolkien is considered the father of high fantasy. Yes, there were fantasy books before The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but those works are considered to have given it the genre, uh, the genre, the enduring popularity that it has. And it's never really waned since those ones came out. Um, a little bit about his personal life. Tolkien's father died when he was three. His mother died when he was 12. And almost all of his friends died in World War One which some believe may be why a theme of death, loss, and sacrifice tends to be very prominent in a lot of his works. Um, and originally, this film series uh, was going to be two movies set up at Miramax, and then Miramax asked them to make it just one movie. And they said, I don't know that they can do that. And they said, well, you can go pitch it to other studios. And they went to New Line, and, the ex- and they pitched the two-film version. And the exec said, why on earth would you try and make this into two movies? And they panicked because they're like, we can't make this into one movie. That's why we left our last studio. And then that exec said, this is clearly supposed to be three movies. <laughs> and then they breathed a sigh of relief and made uh, the three movies uh, that – I, I imagine most of our listeners have uh, seen it. If you have not, it is certainly available uh, for purchase on DVD. You could go to protagonistpodcast.com uh, slash Amazon and make the purchase there. And that helps to support us a little bit. Um, or this is one of those films that I imagine you could just go start knocking on neighbor stores and say, hey, can I borrow Lord of the Rings? <laughs> and one of them will say, yeah, send a, <laughs> here it is. You could send a message out on Facebook <laughs> like I did last night. Um, there you go. <laughs> I, I've been watching this. I've been watching this Spanish uh, TV show called The Ministry of Time, in which there's a there's this Spanish government organization that has to make sure that time is not that the timeline is not disrupted in any way. And there are like people who try to mess up Spanish history, and then the the, the agents have to go back and try to fix it. And I can totally imagine like an American version of this, in which they they like sit down one morning and they go, "Uh oh, somebody messed with time." 
they did the Miramax one film version oh of the Lord of the Rings. We have to go back. We We have to go back. Something must be done. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to cram the story. I mean, clearly Peter Jackson couldn't have done it <laughs> based just on uh, the return of the yeah. King alone. I can say he could not have made this <laughs> into one movie. Nice. Are you ready for, we're ready for the big, uh, the big synopsis. Yeah, so listeners, if you want to go watch it, now's the time to pause this and come back. Uh, but for everyone else, here is a quick synopsis of this film. And I found, kind of like when I wrote the synopsis for White Christmas, and I got to say, and then there's a musical number, and then move on. With this one, there's many points where I got to say, and then there's a fight for about, oh, 20, 25 <laughs> minutes of the film. And I'm going to move on to the next event after that. Could, could you also say, and then they walk. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a, mo- there's a walking montage. <laughs> that, that, that will be addressed uh, in, in the synopsis. All right. We open up with a prologue providing the history of Middle Earth. This is narrated by Kate Blanchett, providing a much-needed female voice to the film. We find out about magical rings that were forged for the elves, dwarves, and man. But uh, there's this bad guy named Sauron, who... Uh, secretly forged one ring to rule them all. A mighty army is raised against Sauron, and but they are all falling before his might when a man named Isildur cuts the ring from Sauron's hand, and this defeats him. Rather than destroy the ring, Isildur keeps it, uh, but we see it soon lost and forgotten for two and a half thousand years until it is found by Gollum, and then the ring is found by a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins who takes it from Gollum. Then comes one of my favorite sequences in the history of film as we shift to the Shire. I love the Shire part of Lord of the Rings. The music, uh, the visuals, the greenery, it's all great. Um, One of the best scores ever written accompanies us into Bilbo Baggins' home as we see him writing about hobbit life, which is simple and unconcerned with the outside world. We then see Frodo sitting in an idyllic setting as Gandalf, a wizard, rides up. It is Bilbo Baggins' birthday party, and Gandalf is there to attend. At the party, Bilbo gives a very uncomfortable and awkward farewell speech and then puts on the magic ring, which makes him disappear. He sneaks back to his house, where Gandalf confronts him about the ring, and Bilbo says, well, he's planning to leave it and all his possessions to Frodo. But he finds it very hard to let go of the ring, but eventually he does. Gandalf leaves uh, to research the ring, and he comes back uh, where uh, Frodo now has it, and he, and he throws the ring into a fire where some magical writing appears around the ring, confirming his suspicion this is the one ring. He asks Frodo to take the ring with him and head to an inn, while Gandalf goes to speak with an elder in his Order of Wizards, and then they're going to meet up at that inn. Samwise Gamgee, who was eavesdropping, is enlisted to accompany Frodo. While on the way to the inn, Samwise provides uh, one of the best examples of crossing the threshold from the hero's journey when he announces that if he takes one more step, he'll be farther from home than he's ever traveled before. So listeners, if you remember back when we talked about the hero's journey, crossing the threshold is one of the major steps in any uh, of these kind of epic tales. Shortly after this, they run into Merry and Pippin, a pair of uh, hobbits, hobbit troublemakers who were stealing from a farmer. Uh, eventually, they get to the inn where they discover that Gandalf is not there to meet them as promised. It's at this point that we start to see the emergence of emo Frodo <laughs> as he moodily plays with the ring. <laughs> Uh, the group then meets a man called Strider, who is everything fantasy stories says say are awesome. And it's all rolled into this one man. He protects the hobbits from an attack by the Ringwraiths, who are shadowy, cloaked horsemen who are hunting for the ring that Frodo has. They start to head off together. And uh, we see Saruman, 
not Sauron, but Saruman, who is the man that Gandalf went to see, we find out that he's really evil, and he's a servant of Sauron, and he has trapped Gandalf, and is building an army for Sauron, and he's using orcs, who are these hideous-looking monster creatures. Uh, The Ringwraiths attack again, and Frodo is wounded before Strider comes in and does heroic Strider things. Uh, They realize that they need to get Frodo to the elves, because his wound is so uh, grievous that Strider can't help him. We cut back to Gandalf as a butterfly lands near him, and he whispers to it, and it flies away. Then we go back to uh, the hobbits and Strider, and an elf named Arwen finds Strider and the hobbits and takes Frodo on horseback back to her people. And she's pursued pursued by the ring wraiths, but after crossing a river, she summons a wall of water to sweep them away. And she gets Frodo to Rivendell, where Hugo Weaving, I mean Elrond, uh, <laughs> heals him. Frodo wakes up uh, now in a different idyllic natural setting than the one we first saw him in, in the Shire. Uh, there are plenty, and plenty Gandalf, of them in this film. Yes. Yes. Uh, Gandalf is sitting next to him. We see a flashback of Gandalf catching a ride on the back of a giant ego, uh, eagle uh, to escape from Saruman. And then we get some stunning shots of Rivendell. And then it's time for a meeting. Very exciting bureaucracy. Humans, dwarves, and elves all come together to discuss what they can do with the One Ring. Lots of debate follows. And in a scene that has launched a thousand (laughs) memes when it is suggested that they destroy the ring in the only way possible by throwing it into Mount Doom, where it was originally forged, Boromir says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. There's lots of arguing about how to destroy the ring when Frodo volunteers to carry it. In response, Strider, who we now know is really Aragorn, uh, the heir to the throne of men, he says that uh, Frodo will have my sword. Legolas, an elf, says, you will have my bow. And Gimli, a dwarf, adds, and my axe. (laughs) And then Boromir says, if it is the will of the council, he will go too. And when you add in Samwise, Merry, Pippin, and Gandalf, we now have a lovely fellowship. Um, Side note, there's this rhetorical thing called metonymy, (laughs) which is when... (laughs) Uh, an object like stands in for something else. So like the crown really means the king. And I love the scene where he says like, uh, you'll have my, my sword, my bow, mm-hmm. my ax. But I also like to en- envision a world where no one understands metonymy and Frodo just walks off with all these weapons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and none of the people. <laughs> all right. Uh, going on the fellowship. Like, this is the end of disc Bill. one. Poor uh, Bill the Pony. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's so tired carrying all of that armor. Yeah, uh, this is the end of disc one of the extended edition, if you were wondering. <laughs> and so now we're on to disc two. The Fellowship is off on a walk across stunning scenery. Uh, they have to hide as a flock of bird flies overhead, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it's done well. <laughs> uh, uh, the flock of birds is clearly searching for the, spell, uh, the Fellowship. And they see where the birds came from, and they say, well, we can't go that way because uh, they're looking for us. So they decide to go over a mountain. But that path is a bit too cold, stormy, and deadly for them. So they decide to go through or under the mountain using the dwarven mines of Moria. Moria. They get to the door of the mines, but they can't get into it because it has a riddle. Um, Frodo is getting a little bit emoer at this point, uh, but he eventually figure, figures out the riddle. And they go in, and they find out that the dwarves have all been killed. And they try to retreat, but there's a sea monster behind them. <laughs> there's like this little <laughs> pond that has a giant sea monster living in it. It's like a it. giant, it's like a kraken. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what it's the amazing. ecosystem of that pond is, <laughs> that it gets enough protein <laughs> to live at the size it does. Um, but they say, well, we can't go back out, so we got to go through the mine. And I'm going to just skip right through a good 20 minutes of the movie, um, because they the mine is infested with goblins, and there's a really cool fight, and they kill a lot of the goblins. 
who look like orcs, but these are not orcs. <laughs> um, and they're, they're running and they're running and they're completely surrounded by just swarms of these goblins uh, when there's the sound of a balrog. Uh, which makes all the goblins run away. So the, the, the goblins want to kill our fellowship, but they're more scared of the Balrog, which is a giant, fiery, monster, demon thing. Uh, now I'm going to skip ahead another 10 minutes to say there was an exciting fight and chase, and it ended with the Balrog falling into an endless pit and pulling Gandalf down beside him. And I just want to make one other note before I get to my last paragraph of the summary. When uh, One of the fandoms I love is Star Wars, and there's a lot of discussion in Star Wars about the Empire's lack of safety codes when they build something. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you <laughs> Like in the Death Star. <laughs> There's open pits everywhere. Um, someone could just fall right into it. I just want to say the Empire looked like sticklers for safety compared to dwarves when it comes yeah. to building <laughs> building code. There was there was no OSHA for dwarves. Uh, I'm so glad uh, you brought that up because I had the exact same thought when they're walking down the staircase. Yeah, like a staircase over an open, endless pit. I don't know what would be possibly at the bottom of it. And the staircase is just narrow and no railings, yeah. nothing at the side. All right. They have a very low center of gravity, so they probably don't like trip and fall. Yeah, it's less of a concern yeah, for them. Yeah. That's true. Uh, that's great insight, Todd. <laughs> that's what I'm <laughs> here for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. One more thing before I finish up. Uh, that, so they, like, it literally is 10 minutes of them running across these narrow bridges and the rocks crumbling. And um, famously, the script for this to this day, like they never updated it. It just says, uh, and they run through the mines of Moria. <laughs> And Peter Jackson <laughs> just added all of this action wow. uh, just on that one line of script in the page. So it's, it's got to be one of the longest like lines in a script to amount of time on screen ever, I would imagine. Uh, the remaining members of the Fellowship, uh, so they've lost Gandalf, uh, but they continue outside of the mines and they, they run some more I'm so, to Mordor. I'm sorry, I have to say one thing. You just, <laughs> you just sparked the thought in me. What about 2001 Space Odyssey? Like, <laughs> that's like five lines of, of script for... A, two-hour film, right? Like... <laughs> I don't, well, okay. It's, like... it's going to have to be a debate for another time, or we're just going to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> that, that one is probably in the running as well. Uh, all right, so we're now outside the mines. Uh, the, the group gets into a magical section of woods, and they encounter a new elvish area called Lothlorien where there they meet Galadriel, who is an elvish ring-bearer, and she shows Frodo the mirror of Erised. Wait, wait. <laughs> she shows him a mirror uh, that's magical, and uh, inside and of it he sees flashes of He sees of, himself of winning the may... House Cup. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He sees flashes of what may lie in his future, and it's not necessarily pretty. Um, everyone is now rested and resupplied, uh, so they head off again, but a party of orcs is now hunting them, and Gollum is also following them, but that does not matter much for this film. That's more significant than the next while the camp rests, Sam talks to, uh, to Frodo about his increasing emoness. Um, and pretty soon, Boromir confronts Frodo. And Boromir wants to use the ring to protect his kingdom and his people. And when Frodo refuses, Boromir, Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo. Frodo runs away, and Boromir re realizes what he's done. He feels guilty about it. Uh, but just then, orcs attack. And there is a great fight sequence that I'm not going to describe in a lot of detail. Uh, but the key results of this fight are that there are many, many dead orcs. And that now that he's unable to trust the Fellowship because of Boromir's betrayal, Frodo tries to run off on his own, but Samwise won't let him run off on his own. Samwise goes with him. Merry and Pippin see what Frodo is planning, and they distract the orcs, so they sacrifice themselves, and they, they yell and scream so the orcs will go after them, because they know the orcs are just looking for halflings or hobbits. They don't know which ones to grab. Uh, and so they're giving Frodo time to escape, and Boromir dies trying to save Merry and Pippin, 
and Merry and Pippin are then kidnapped by the orcs. Uh, they want the hobbits alive because they know one of them is bearing the ring. And then after the fight is over, Gimli and Legolas lament that they have failed, but Aragorn says they will not leave Merry and Pippin to be tortured by orcs, and they begin to go hunt orcs. And then, final shot, as they look towards Mordor, Frodo laments that they'll never see their friends again, and Sam says they may yet. And Frodo says that he's glad Sam is with him. And then the credits roll for a good 20 minutes or so. Way to go. The end. Much, wow. much more Thank succinct you. than our podcast. <laughs> I know, it's like... <laughs> like we live in alternative universes or something. You can either do it in, in 20 minutes, or you can do it for, what, 290 uh, minutes? I don't know. For a I know year, or you can do it in months. 20 minutes. It'll <laughs> a, good, yeah. a goodly amount. Awesome. All right. So, uh, is there any particular character you want to make sure that we get to? The, I, I think so many of these characters would be worth having a discussion, but we have a limited amount of time. But does anyone have a favorite character you want to make sure we get to? Do you want to pick Sam? Do you want to? Do you want to? Oh, <laughs> Sarah, do you? It's Sam. Sam. Sam is is the character to talk about. I'm just saying it. I'm saying it right now. I'm saying it for all of you to hear. Sam's the character to talk about. Okay. Hey, hey. There's there's a letter from Tolkien. Where there's an ambiguous pronoun, and either Sam or Aragorn is supposed to be the hero of the entire trilogy, <laughs> and his son says that it was probably Sam. <laughs> I I would I I wouldn't argue with it. I have a I have like one, maybe a nit and one just a, a question about this before we jump into characters. Is that okay? Yeah. And if anybody ahead. else has any grievances, they're welcome to air them now. <laughs> uh, one is that. This film, I mean, it's it's amazing, but some of the special effects felt a tiny bit dated to me. Like, I felt like it didn't hold up as well as I thought that it would. I think that's that's uh, that it's in the heavy CGI areas for me. Do you yes. agree with that, Cassandra? Um, I think the um, some of the like the green screen effects early on when when they have the uh, the scale doubles for the hobbits, um, mm-hmm. like in Bag End, you can tell. Um, and I think the yeah. cave troll suffers a little bit. Yes, that was the other one. The the yeah. fight with the cave um, troll. But yeah, the cave troll and like when uh, when is it when when Frodo puts on the ring? Anyway, there are a couple of times where like the disappearing thing. Oh like, yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <You're> like oh. <laughs> but uh, but other than that, it's it's just an amazing piece of filmmaking. I I do have one question I, about Gimli's axe. So when they're in the big council. And uh, and the the ring is sitting up on that altar thing, mm-hmm. and he says, "Then let's destroy it." And Gimli gets up with his axe, and he tries to he tries to smash the ring with his axe, and his axe breaks into a bunch of pieces. And then later on in that scene, Gimli is holding an axe again <laughs> when he says, "And my axe!" Like <laughs> I think, like does he does he have like a little like a little servant? He he carries yeah, he several. Has axes. Like he has he has one. That's like two sided, so it's got a blade on each side. He's got one that's um, one sided. He's got his tree felling axe. He's, he's got his orc mm-hmm. killing. But does he axe. carry he's, he's, all he's of got... them to the to the council? Todd, have you ever been to this kind of council? <laughs> you come armed. <laughs> well, like Legolas and Aragorn are in their jammies. They're just like <laughs> Gimli. Maybe they kept them on. They keep them under their chairs. <laughs> battle. Gimli is the ultimate. They just, uh, they just tuck it under. Gimli's the, the ultimate Boy Scout. He always comes prepared. So he has like. Okay. He has like his hatchet axe. He has his like, yeah, his like orc killing axe. He's probably named them all. 
Okay. <laughs> and not, it's not orc killing axe. It's like this is uh, you know a fro. Uh, nope, I'm gonna go with a name that was already in the <laughs> it was a photo. That's not. <laughs> Frith. So Frith. it's hard to make up fantasy names. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Todd. Yes. I have a comment on your earlier statement about the effects seeming dated. Yeah. I, I have a very distinct memory from when you watched the second <laughs> movie at our house and and you were watching and you're like, Gollum looks so real. But I know I say that now. I, be, I bet in 10 years we're all going to say, it's like, that looks so fake. And so you have you fulfilled your own prophecy. <laughs> so you re- you actually remember me saying that? Wow. Yeah. You, you anticipated this moment. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, it's happened. It's come. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just feels like they're they're just. It's not like the whole entire film, and it's not super distracting. But every once in a while, I'm like, ooh, ooh, like just didn't didn't quite uh, hold I, up over over time. I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me of like Jurassic Park. Like there are parts that hold up so amazingly well, but then there's a couple CGI yeah. sequences from the '93 Jurassic Park that just don't hold up, and it kind of stands out as separate from everything else. And I think, particularly for me, it was the cave troll sequence. Like there's a CGI Legolas <laughs> at one point that I'm just like, mm, that's mm-hmm. that looks like the video game version of Legolas. Yeah. I would not, argue, not I would argue that the CGI in this movie though are is still better than the CGI in the Hobbit movies. Um, cause, cause, even like it now. Because <laughs> the Hobbit movies, like, oh, you could tell that it was really fake. But at least with this, they yeah, at least with this, they made an effort to make it look. And if they used CGI as little as possible, because they were saving it all for Gollum, mm-hmm. so pretty much all of the effects are either like miniatures or um, uh, practical. Um, until like, yeah, unless they yeah. couldn't physically or like feasibly do that. And there's, I mean, there's a fair amount of like green screen work. Yeah. And- stuff i think there's some scenes with um saruman at the tower Mm -hmm. that that feel a little like looks a little painted but yeah overall it's it's a triumph of movie making (laughs) (laughs) so uh so sam let's talk about sam all right should we talk about uh sean astin's performance real quick sure uh i guess i like i i would have said I could never imagine him as anything other than Rudy before I saw him as Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, he, he was so like connected to that one role for me. But he really does like become a different character and person as Samwise. Um, and not every actor seems capable of becoming <laughs> another person. I'm not saying they're bad actors, but sometimes they are so iconic mm-hmm. in some roles that they can't really disappear. Uh, and so I, I think it's credit to... A lot of the filmmaking tricks that we see, uh, credit to, again, the costuming and the makeup that's done. But it's also a huge credit to his performance that you believe he's, you know, just the most loyal friend to to Frodo and that he's not, you know, an obsessed Notre Dame football fan. <laughs> I think you could say the same thing about a lot of the actors in this film. Like, Ian McKellen's performance is, like, freakishly good. And, uh, and... I, I, anyway, I think you could say a lot about, about a lot of these characters. They don't you don't you don't feel like I'm watching Elijah Wood be Frodo Baggins. You just you feel like you're watching Frodo mm-hmm. and Sam and Mary and Pippin and Aragorn and uh, and Saruman and it's it's the top to bottom. The performances in this are really good. Can I can I say things about Sam? Go for it. It seems I mean, to be your favorite. <laughs> I I feel like I mean this movie isn't the best Sam movie. Like, I think he shines more in in the next two. But like Joseph said, like, he's the one that gets the crossing of the yeah. threshold. And and he gets the, like, the beautiful speeches throughout the movies about, like, 
why are we doing this? It's because there's beautiful things in the world and like, they're worth it. And like Frodo doesn't have this depth of motivation. Frodo uh-huh. kind of like, he's like, well, this is like the thing I'm doing. And <laughs> Sam's like literally at some points carrying him through this with this belief in what's good mm-hmm. about the world. And Frodo doesn't have that depth of feeling. Well, I think some of it is that Frodo gets like, I, I joked that you know, we see the emergence of emo Frodo, but he becomes deader in yeah. every sense, yeah. you know, emotionally. Uh, and even by the end of this film, like his optimism is dead. Like he's just says flat out, we're never going to see our friends again. And Samwise is the one who injects this hint of, you know, there's hope. There's a reason we're doing this. <laughs> that it's, it's not to go die. Right. <laughs> like we're doing this for uh to make a better world and part of that better world could be us seeing our friends again what if what if samwise had become the ring bearer and frodo was his companion do you think that their roles would have switched like in the in the same ways i don't but i mean like part of that's just influenced by like watching the film and and like the fact that the frodo we see most of the time is a frodo that's being consumed right. inside so we don't see the natural you know, lighthearted friend Frodo. Well, we see him at the mm-hmm. beginning. But... We see him at the beginning when he meets Gandalf, and they kind of joking with each other, and he seems happy. and And Bilbo says, "If I, you know, when he's drunk, <laughs> and he's talking to Frodo, <laughs> and he says, hey, Frodo, I just want you to know that I, what does he say? I didn't bring, I didn't bring you with... in. I didn't bring you in because what is he? Cassandra, can you remember this? Um, <laughs> I know what scene you're talking." About. He says you're the only this one of my family about, with, it, with something with an adjective. Yeah. <laughs> no. Anyway, he says you're the you have spirit is what he says. Mm-hmm. Like I brought you in because you have spirit, and so the, I mean the, he does kind of ha- kind of have this like plucky hobbit happiness that we see in Merry and Pippin and and Samwise, but the ring just sucks but he's it maybe out of him. Like I feel like he's he's a little more carefree than Sam is. Yeah. Like Sam, Sam is a worried soul uh-huh. the whole time. Like bef- even before the ring shows up, even though we're saying he's optimistic, he like also he he worries. Like he gardens for Frodo, he tends the stuff for Frodo. Yeah, and Frodo kind of lives a, a more carefree life of going out and partying, and he has to kind of encourage Sam because Sam's discouraged about talking to the the mm-hmm. cute girl. Rosie is that her name? Rosie. Yeah, it's Rosie. Yeah, and and so you know Sam has this worry inside him. But it also kind of, he's the one that, you know, does the the work day in and day out. And Frodo kind of lives this carefree, like, it's all right. Like, don't worry about it. Like, you can talk to her. You know, Frodo doesn't have any worries. Or if he does, it's not like, and, they might be superficial or not. I don't know, because he comes from like a relatively well-off family. Um, and, and Bilbo mm-hmm. is like a really wealthy hobbit. Like, he has like... The luxury, yeah, the luxury everything. hobbit hole and whatever. Um, so Frodo's coming from a life of, like, like you were saying, like a, a life of like very little worries or like privilege, and Sam is more like mm-hmm. working class, um, which makes their relationship a lot more significant. If you think about like, because in the movie, I don't think the movie does a good job of communicating the class um, structure of hobbit like life. But in the book, it's very mm-hmm. evident that Frodo is, like, from money and Sam. Like, Sam's his gardener. So it's like, if you are a millionaire and then you just buddy up with your, like, the person who mows your lawn every weekend and then you go on this grand quest. And, <laughs> like, I don't, it's, I mean, it sounds silly. 
I'd watch that movie. <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly when you put it in that perspective, but especially with Tolkien growing up in England, England and South Africa, like before World War One and before World War Two too. Um, there's still very much that classist attitude, and I think the relationship between Frodo and Sam is really important to him to show, like, you know, there are these boundaries, but they aren't really important, or they're not as important mm-hmm. as what you can do when you, like, work together toward a grander goal. Um, and I don't know where I was going with this, but I love Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I, like, I love that he's the one that pauses for introspection before taking that next yeah. step, you know, to be farther from home and than Sam, ever. Like Sam like, really. It, it feels like Sam's co- going back there yeah. one day and Frodo doesn't hesitate to walk yeah. away from everything. Um, And Frodo, Frodo is a little like he grew up further away in the Shire. Like he grew up where Marion Pippin are from, like toward the outskirts of the Shire. But Sam as far as I'm aware, is, like, from Hobbiton, and he's never... He's, like... It's, like, leaving your small town for the first time. Um, and as as the movie goes, Sam is the one who grows the most, which you can argue means he is the hero of the story. He's yeah. the protagonist, yeah. yeah. I have a... Uh, there's a... There's a, a C.S. Lewis character from Chronicles of Narnia called Puddleglum. You guys... Are any of you... Readers of remember. I've read all of them, but oh it's been God. probably decades, so the memory <laughs> is a little shaky. That from? I haven't read all of them. So Puddleglum is this character in one of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure that one of our listeners, probably many of our listeners, know this character, but they're yelling at their earbuds <laughs> right now. Yes. Uh, so so please write us in and give us some more background on this. But if I remember correctly, Puddleglum is a character and he's a total Eeyore. Like he's always kind of worried about everything, kind of like how Sam is. And in the end, they, they're sent on this quest, he and some other, you know, questers that seem far more uh, plucky and adventurous than he is. He's always just kind of worried about everything. Um, but in the end, they all lose track, and he, he's able to stay focused. And in part, it's because he's just so mundane that he doesn't get lost in, um, in like, the grandeur of everything. And so when everybody else gets distracted from the quest... Puddleglum is the one that's like, no, guys, come on. We've got to do this thing, you know? And, like, I, I kind of see some of Puddleglum and Samwise or some of Samwise and Puddleglum, like, there's something there's something so, like, humble and down-to-earth in him that that keeps him, almost, like, keeps him safe mm-hmm. from the from the darkness that's around him. And then he does, like, in these... He, he gets all like the greatest lines, <laughs> you know, like all it's all the love and light and hope uh, comes from Samwise. And it's and it's so cool because he's just like he's just a gardener. But I think it's not accidental. I don't know. Yeah. I like it. So for this film, one of my favorite characters to think about, um, and this goes back to a film class I was in in college where the teacher um, we, we watched a huge chunk of this film, but he called it The Tragedy of Boromir. Oh, no. That's how he viewed oh. uh, this film. Uh, and some of that, I, I think, like, for this film, his character arc is one of the most interesting, and that's yeah. because it's the one that ends. Spoiler, Gandalf comes back, so his doesn't end <laughs> in this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the what I think makes his tragedy so well-written, and Sean Bean does a great performance for it, is that 
um, his motivation that makes him like take the evil turn at the end. Like it's, it's a good motivation, right? Yeah. Like he, he was corrupted by a noble desire in some way. Uh, the, you know, he, he wants the ring literally not for his own personal glory, but to protect his people. Uh, and he says his people are actually what, you know, the line of defense against Mordor and this ring could turn the tide for his people and for the entire, you know, all of middle earth. Um, but it's not what needs to be done in that moment, but it is a noble desire that drives him to do this act, uh, you know, to give into the temptation that he's been feeling since the council of Elrond, (laughs) you know, to, to try and take the ring from Frodo. Um, and then you get, uh, you know, the, the redemption where, you know, his death is this final act of nobility as he is trying to save Merry and Pippin. He's the only one that's there. And he, he, you know, he, he does everything possible and, you know, more than would be possible for me or anyone else listening, I'm sure, to try and protect <laughs> Merry and Pippin from the scores of orcs that are falling down upon them at that moment. Uh, but I, I just love that, uh, that the, the turn of, the good character to evil sometimes in stories feels unearned, but Boromir's I think feels earned and motivated. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's a really good point. I, I can imagine a version of this film. Maybe it's the one hour Miramax version of the film (laughs) in which, (laughs) in which you see Boromir at the very beginning and you go, Whoa, that guy's kind of shady, you know? (laughs) And then, uh, he's always like skulking around and, and because there are there you can kind of get that vibe from him even in the beginning when uh when he meets Aragorn for the first time and he doesn't re- he doesn't recognize him and he picks up the sword and he's like oh it's it's the big fancy sword and it's still sharp and I cut my finger and um you can kind of see that this guy's interested in power and that he's um what's the word that I'm looking for uh ambitious. he's impressed oh yeah yeah he's ambitious and he's he's impressed by power mm-hmm. and uh but then we get all of these little scenes like intermixed with that. So we see Boromir, he's this big guy. Uh, he's very ambitious and he's, he's impressed by power and he wants to save his kingdom and he's willing to you know, try out the ring. But then we also see him like teaching Merry and Pippin how to sword fight and like playing with them. And then when they're climbing on the mountain and they're going in the snow and the snow's falling on top of them and he's holding the two hobbits underneath his arms... And he's the one that tells Gandalf, if we don't turn back, the hobbits are going to die. Like, you can, you can see that there's, like, kindness and softness in him, mm-hmm. along with that, like, ambition and, and power and warriorness. There's also, like, the cute, cuddly Boromir that, you know, like, <laughs> wrestles around on the ground with the, with the hobbits. And I think it makes, it makes the, when he, when he turns, when he turns against Frodo, it makes that more tragic <laughs> and sad, mm-hmm. but it also makes his his like his his last stand is not like a huge change from who from who he was initially. Right. It's like a it's like a course correction back to where, back to who he you know like being true to who he really is or a part of who he really is, rather than like a complete role reversal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And I, I think it's, I just think it's really good writing uh, to kind of keep him well, balanced and not have him be like, oh, he's a really bad guy. And then all of a sudden he's really good. It's like, he's a complicated guy. And in the end, he, he kind of like, he veers one way and then he realizes his mistake and immediately veers back towards the better side of his nature. That is his nature. And the film, I, it does a good job throughout of seeing 
or, or almost giving the ring agency, right? Yeah. Like the ring manipulates oh, yeah. people around it. Uh, and so his turn isn't like he is being manipulated by the ring when he tries to take the ring from Frodo. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is a part of that scene. But there was something in him, like you said, that, uh, you know, that uh, in his, his respect or, or awe of power, his want, desire to wield that power to protect his people, like all that was in him and the ring, you know, pushed it further. It, it's interesting to me the way the ring or the movie does that to the ring. It almost makes the ring a character. Um, so we see, let's see, Bilbo or uh, yeah, Bilbo, we see him turn because of the ring's influence, we see Galadriel have a moment uh, of what, like revealing what the ring is, is, you know, tempting her with, you know, in terms of its power. So you see uh, some of the most noble characters (laughs) in the story suffer temptations uh, just as Bormir does. I think it's interesting that Bormir primarily seems to interact with Merry and Pippin instead of Frodo and Sam. Mm -hmm. It like, I don't know how much of that was in the book. I've, I've read the books, but it was, it's been a while. And like his sacrifice is for Merry and Pippin, yeah. At least as much, if not more, than it is for Frodo to to get away, and and like he carries Merry and Pippin in the snow. Yeah, yeah. He's not carrying, right. You know, Sam mm-hmm. and Frodo, and um, and I also think that has a massive impact on Merry and Pippin. Like this guy that they played with, um, you know, having his final stand really affects them as their characters develop in the next two movies. And I think, and it affects them in different ways. And I think that's really interesting. I think um, part of the reason he doesn't interact with Frodo is because at this point, Frodo is also under the influence of the ring. So he's withdrawing more and he's much more suspicious. Like he is, he's on his way to becoming um, Gollum, like in the very, very early steps. So I think, if it wasn't for the fact that he's kind of saddled with these companions, he would just go alone. Um, and I think Boromir, cause Boromir is pretty good about being able to read people. Um, so I think Boromir kind of senses that and he, he tries to interact with Frodo at one point. Um, cause there's that great scene in the snow where Frodo loses yeah. the ring and he, he goes to pick it up. Um, but everyone, and I think part of the reason why everyone is kind of, on edge with Boromir too is because he expressed interest early on during the council in using the ring for good. Um, so I think part of that is just, you know, well, if you're going to hang out with people and those people don't want to hang out with you, I guess you got to find other friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do you think it's, I mean, part of me wonders if Boromir, what is it in the village when, um, in the movie, the village, when the, Joaquin Phoenix character says, I know that you, I know that you like that woman because you never touch her. (laughs) And like, I wonder if there's something, there's something of that in Boromir. Like he, he know, he, like he, like he knows the temptation and he, he's like, I don't even want to go there. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'd I'd rather just hang out with Mary and Pippin (laughs) because I know that that's, (laughs) because I know that that's like bad news for me over there. Mm -hmm. But Aragorn, I think Mary and Pippin remind him of his brother. That too. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. And like his interactions with his brother. Yeah. Cool. I love I love Boromir in this. So good. Cassandra, do you have a favorite character you want to make sure we uh, we give some attention to? I don't to? know. I really like all of them. I am really fascinated by um, elves in general, um, and I and Orlando Bloom uh, in yeah. particular. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, some things never change, but I it's. 
I don't know. There's just something about like Elvish culture in particular um, that I find really interesting. And so much so that when I was initially really, really like in my first like obsessive phase with the books, I almost looked up um, like a like a teacher, like teach yourself Elvish course online. Um, it's <laughs> like I like the the etherealness of elves. And I think um, Liv Tyler in particular does a really good job of portraying Arwen. And she's not given a whole lot to work with. Uh, but, I mean, it's more than what she's... It's, like, in the source material, but I think she does a really good job <laughs> of, like, portraying that gracefulness and also being, um, like, a realistic love interest for Aragorn, um, and not just, like, some kind of weird, unattainable goal or, like, woman on a pedestal, you know? Um... And I like mm-hmm. I like that in the movie they gave her more agency and things to do, um, like like the uh, the flight to the Ford scene where she takes Frodo into Rivendell. Oh man, it's I I love that scene so much. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can appreciate Tolkien's like his literary mastery, his language, his uh, you know reinvention of high fantasy, but he didn't write the greatest female characters oh, no. in history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and uh, he planted the seeds of some of some interesting female characters, yes. but it was not his forte. Um, but even like, <laughs> I have a couple of questions about this. Oh yeah, but, but uh, yeah, um, about the about the Ford. I love the that whole scene from when she from when she catches uh, Aragorn off his guard, mm-hmm. and then and then the the horse race to the Ford. I, I am always just shocked at that the. the the ring rays don't get her. Yeah. <laughs> they seem like they're awfully, awfully close. <laughs> um, but I have a question about about elf lore, I guess, or like the rules of el- elvendom. Mm-hmm. So when Frodo's dying on the banks of the after the after the horse water comes and takes the ring rays away, yeah. then Frodo's dying, and she says something like, "Whatever grace I have, I give to you." Mm-hmm. And I've always been. And then later on, she's talking to Aragorn about, I choose a mortal life. Yeah. And in my mind, I've always been kind of under the impression that, like, she gave, like, her immortality or or something of it to Frodo to save him. Hmm. But that was her grace. I've never thought about it that way. But then that kind of... Then that kind of cheapens her. <laughs> like, the, if that's true, then when she's talking to Aragorn and she's like, yeah. I choose a mortal life for you. It's like, <laughs> it's like she's going to have it anyway because she already gave it to Frodo. Um, so it's not like she... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. See, I, <laughs> this is totally my misreading that. of the text. <laughs> I'd always seen that uh, moment when she was, like, saying that over Frodo, almost more like a prayer. Like, a, yeah. you know, just, uh, like, saying rights more than... Um, than an actual magical act that's mm-hmm. happening, but okay. I can I can see what you're saying, Todd. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just explaining how I read it before. <laughs> yeah, I think it is supposed to be more of like a like a. I hope that everything. Well, not like like you were saying a prayer, um, because Arwen, at least in the book, she doesn't really have a lot of magic, um, and a lot of the magic from Rivendell comes from 
Elrond, um, spoilers, being one of, like, he bears one of the rings of power that the elves have. Right. Um, so the reason, like, the horse, the horse water happens is because of Elrond's magic, but I like that they give it to Arwen because it adds to her, like, mystique or whatever. Uh Um, and the thing about her choosing a mortal life is because elves are, like, the ultimate monogamists. Like, they only have one love, and uh-huh. that, like, that's it for them. So, because, like, by giving her, her the by giving Aragorn her love, she is, she really is condemning herself to death, because, like, that's, that's basically it. And uh-huh. even if elves, like, love an other elf, if they die, they never love again, which is, like, the saddest uh-huh. thing. And I think some of them <laughs> might, like, turtle dove sometimes, but... I can't remember if Elrond's wife is still alive. I don't think she is, but um I know Thranduil's wife, uh the Lord of Mirkwood, like he like she's she's gone. So he's just bitter forever. <laughs> <laughs> so like that It's just a fun <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in my in my headcanon, she gives she gives her like whatever the, the magic inside of her that makes her immortal, she gives it to Frodo. And then she's talking to Aragorn, and she's like, she's like, how can I tell him that I gave it to Frodo? <laughs> so she's like, I choose a mortal life. I choose to be with you. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway. That's really funny. I do. I love, I love that. That whole sequence, though, with her is just awesome. Mm-hmm. So great. I want to... Um... So go back to something Cassandra was saying, where uh, you said you like love all of the Elvish yep. culture and like the the world of the elves that's on display, and it's interesting to me like in the design of the film and the, like the visual aesthetics that were given, um, like the two worlds that are the most nature driven are Hobbiton and and uh, the elf you know the the elf yep. worlds uh, Lothlorien and uh, Rivendell, whereas like the, the dwarf one it's all hard angles and like everything mm-hmm. is cut. It's, it's, you know, not natural at all. It's, it's been, you know, forced into shape, but there's a difference between Hobbiton and Rivendell, whereas like Hobbiton almost feels like nature has overrun yeah. <laughs> like what they've done. Whereas Rivendell, it's like perfect harmony between yeah. the elf structure and right. the trees and, you know, all the nature roundabout. Like it's like in, in uh, Rivendell, nature and elves are working together. Whereas in Hobbiton, the hobbits kind of almost happen to live in yeah. nature and nature doesn't care one way or the other. I, like based on what you're saying, I would say like the elves kind of grew the nature into what they needed and the hobbits just like moved into <laughs> Yeah. Like here's a spot we put dirt down. Oh, grass grows. I think, um, <laughs> do you, I mean, do you agree with that kind of visual aesthetic? Um, of the I two? think, uh, hobbiton is a little more cultivated, like, um, not like culture wise, but mm-hmm. just literally like, cultivated like they domesticated the land um and they kind of there's it's it's like two different harmonies you have the hobbiton Mm -hmm. harmony of you know it's lush and green but there's it's like farmland and it has a purpose and then you have rivendell where the trees kind of mold like mold into the the houses and vice versa and the same thing with lothlorien and i think because elves are far more attuned to nature than hobbits are. So I think hobbits work with the land, but elves are a part of the land, if that makes sense. It does. And it's just impressive to me that you can have two, like, I think most people, if they were trying to envision, like, harmony between 
a race of creatures mm-hmm. in nature, you probably land pretty similarly. Yeah. But these are very yeah. distinct, what you get between Hobbiton and, and Rivendell. And even the difference between Rivendell and Lothlorien, like, just mm-hmm. uh, aesthetically and also the architecture. Um, Rivendell is a lot... I think Rivendell is a lot more welcoming and Lothlorien is a lot more alien. But it takes both... It takes that concept and there's two different outcomes. And I really like the the set design for both of those. What about Moria? Yeah, just- what about Moria in all of this? Cause like it is, I mean, there are sharper angles in Moria, but I do also feel like the dwarves, like given the environment in which they live there, there also is something kind of harmonious with between them and the, and the rock. Yeah. They have to have an amazing understanding of rocks or the whole thing would have collapsed in on them. Yeah. Like, I don't know how that mountain <laughs> still standing when it's basically a hollowed out shell i think the difference between like because elves live in harmony like the land dictates what the elves do but i think dwarves and especially moria illustrates and uh like a mastery of the land or at least their mountain like they're able to like that scene with the great hall with all the pillars everywhere like oh yeah they're able to take something mm-hmm. so just fundamental and like wild and raw as a mountain and they're able to make it into something really beautiful yeah i just like i I contrast that with what happens to saruman's tower and the first time that gandalf visits him it's so beautiful and it like they're walking through this you know parks basically Mm -hmm. and it's it's all verdant and it's just amazing and then once saruman you know shows his hand then they're chopping down the trees and they're burning them and it's all like industrialized and it feels so destructive in a way that Moria doesn't, or at least Moria, you know, at its height, I don't think would have felt like that. Yeah. Like not not destructive, more creative. And like one of the fundamental themes of Tolkien's stories is the industrialization versus nature. Um, and he was very anti-industrialization, so it's really cool that they include that aspect, because it's a really important theme in, like, all of Tolkien's work, that they include that in the movie, at least in part, because you see, like, the beautiful park of, uh, around Orthanc, Saruman's tower, and then you see what happens when Saruman, like, aligns himself with evil. Um, so, I, I really like that they include that, too. While we've mentioned themes... Uh, one thing that I've come across in uh, looking at, at Tolkien at various points is that he really hated the idea of mm-hmm. symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> he hated the idea of a particularly like one, one to one. Like he hated when anyone asked him like, does the ring represent nuclear power? Cause this was written after World War. like, he's no, <laughs> I don't. He's like, I think it's childish yeah. to try and do that. But he did enjoy and wove in what he, he called like applicability where like the themes or the ideas behind the, the like the story that he's telling are going to have broad applicability to humankind, right. you know, to history, to like where you can see these ideas. And you mentioned like one of the themes that he has is this idea of like the corruption of industrialization yeah. versus the the harmony of living with nature. But are there any other themes that you see present in this work that you think have that kind of applicability that he tried to work for? Um, I don't know if it's like a, a theme that Tolkien scholars necessarily agree with. Um, I haven't really looked into it a whole bunch, but um, I was talking about it earlier, the, the theme of like looking past um, like classism uh, because you have, mm-hmm. you have people from all different walks of life in this fellowship. And, you know, one is the, the king of, or the, the son of a steward and one is a gardener. And it's really, I think that especially in this book, 
is a theme throughout that if, you know, if more, if people work together, uh, the many are greater than the few. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I really relate to that too, that theme, especially in this movie. <laughs> I like that. I think another one, I mean, we, we touched on Boromir and his corruption and like the, the threat that uh, you see for Bilbo and Galadriel to turn, like this idea of um, power, you know, the corruption uh, influence of power, um, that even if the motivation to try and obtain power can be good, as it is for mm -hmm. Boromir, um, like there's this threat that it will turn you uh, and that your wielding of the power uh, will will change you and, and uh, you know, shift the, the actions that you thought you were going to be doing before you right. had that power. Um, and there's some like explicit dialogue about that, where uh, at the council, when uh, Bormir says we can use this, I can, is it Aragorn who says you, no one uses the ring. I think it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, the, the ring uses. Yeah. Um, so, so Aragorn understands that. And he makes that quite explicit when uh, Frodo, like after Bormir's turned on Frodo, like, says basically to Aragorn, like, will you turn on me mm -hmm. too? And Aragorn walks up and like closes Frodo's hand around the ring and says like, I, I would have followed you all the way to Mordor to the fires of Mordor itself, right. but you, you're choosing to go alone and I'm going to respect that too. <laughs> like he, uh, he understands the, the potential for, for the power of the ring to corrupt him too. I'm also interested in, um, the theme of, in like an inheritance or just like a legacy that you don't necessarily want, but you need to deal with. Um, like Frodo, he inherits the ring and that literally becomes like a soul crushing burden for him, but he feels the need to, because it's now his, he feels the need to take care of it. Um, and then you have Aragorn who is the heir to the throne, but he feels like, because he's like the line of Kings that Isildur fell and so he's kind of worried about becoming what his ancestor was. And so he's also burdened with the the weight of his inheritance. And he has to kind of struggle with that. And either you become consumed by it, like Frodo almost is, or you kind of overcome it, like Aragorn does in the third movie. Um, so I really... I'm really interested in kind of tracking how that theme goes as we cover the whole trilogy um, to see if that pops up in any other because I think it, it kind of pops up in Boromir too because Boromir has this expectation to save his people and save his kingdom and there's a lot of pressure on him um, so I'm interested to see if any of it pops up in any of the other characters too um, hmm. but that's just something that we've noticed on our watch through Okay. Some of that stuff in in Rohan. Some of the stuff with Ro with Rohan in the in the second yeah. film. Seems like that'll come up again. Mm -hmm. So I fa um, I finished quick, uh, go uh, ahead. before before you jump on. Uh, I just thought of one other character for what I said with power. The the ring wraiths are like the perfect example oh, yeah. of the corrupting. Oh yeah. Influence of power. Um, and, and like showing exactly how far this will go. Um, and, and so I think it is something that he was definitely deliberately seeding throughout. And I, I, the parallels that you're drawing between Frodo receiving the ring and uh, Aragorn with the kingdom, that seems like a really interesting theme that I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about before. So uh, I was looking up the published date of The Catcher in the Rye. It's 1951. And The Fellowship of the Ring was published in 1954. 
So we talked about Catcher in the Rye uh, a couple months ago. Months yeah. ago. And, uh, and we, we mentioned that J.D. Salinger was, uh, had been to war and that it was really, really hard for him. And he came back and that Catcher uh, – there's a way of reading Catcher in the Rye as seeing it as like him working through the trauma of war. And Catcher in the Rye is a <laughs> um, – let's just say that Holden Caulfield is not Samwise Gamgee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there, you could teach a really interesting class of, in which you, you looked at these works side by side as like post-war – Working oh, through the really trauma cool. of war, um, because there is in in the Lord of the Rings, you see uh, themes of death and sacrifice and loss, um, the necessity of war in order to uh, maintain peace. There's the, I mean, we see this beautiful, like idyllic description of the Shire initially, but it's only possible. I mean, those those people in the Shire have no idea of all of the sacrifice that's going on, like in Gondor, <laughs> right? right? That's keeping them safe. And Boromir and his men, you know, fighting day after day after day after day after day just to, to hold off the darkness so that, the, so that, you know, Samwise and Merry and Pippin and Frodo can go make googly eyes at Rosie, the, <laughs> the barmaid, right? Like, <laughs> but there's something, there's something, I think, fundamentally different in, in the way that these two authors approach that like that real the realization of the violence and necessity of war mm-hmm. um, that I think is really interesting and and that somebody like Samwise I, I think again is such an important character because he's able to like see hope and express hope even in the even in the darkest times and that I mean time after time we see this theme of finding seeing hope in darkness and being able to keep going when all is lost. And um, I think it's it's one of the great kind of triumphs of this novel is the way that it, it balances the, the darkness and the light. All right. Well, any uh, final thoughts about Fellowship of the Rings? The ring, <laughs> the ring singular. Lord of the Rings, plural. <laughs> um, let's see. I've got a couple of notes here. There is an essay by Azek As- Asimov called The Ring of Evil, and in it, he talks about uh, something that you were talking about earlier, Joe, about how Tolkien was not really into like one-to-one symbolism. Like this is that. Uh, but one of the things that he did spectacularly well is to create a, a series of metaphors that are like strong, strong metaphors, uh, but also kind of slippery metaphors. So they can they can mean or or they can so like the ring for example can symbolize uh, nuclear power certainly but it could also be a, a hundred other things or a thousand other things and um, I just I every time I look at this film or read the story I think what is the what is what could the ring be it's not like what is the ring what does the ring symbolize it's like what could the ring symbolize. And there are a thousand right answers to that question, and it's it's part of the power of the of the writing of this. It's, w- it's just something that I think is really cool. Um, and then speaking of the ring, also just because we talked about Harry Potter a, f- a few weeks ago, um, what's up with binding your soul to like objects? <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like it's a Horcrux. Yeah. 
right? The ring, the ring of power is a is a horse. <laughs> and there's a there's a description of it in here where it's like they could have pulled the lines from Dumbledore, in which it's a uh, who is it? I think it'd be the other way around, Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But um. <laughs> but yeah, it's a. Uh, is it Gandalf? Somebody saying like, "Oh, Sauron is dead," and he says, "No." He Are you saying that Gandalf and Dumbledore would be interchangeable in any way? Tom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, but uh, he. Somebody says Sauron is dead, and he says, "No, he's not dead. He infused his soul into the ring." And I'm like, "What? It's a Horcrux! Yeah. It's it's amazing. It's like a proto Horcrux. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. But I, I think it's. I mean, I think there's something like philosophically, there's something there. This idea of in, like infusing some object with your soul, I think is really interesting. I don't know what I don't well, know. What it there seems to, to be. It, I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples, but it certainly seems to be negative. Like in all instances, yeah. <laughs> like you, you don't do that because <laughs> um, it's inherently selfish, right? It's uh, it's uh, you know, it, it's about your own immortality. It's about your own power. It seems to be uh, what we see. Uh, from the for the characters in in fantasy that do this, um, and it's one of the things I love about fantasy is that you can have these kinds of conversations <laughs> you right. know, about this idea of infusing your soul. But I think there's like real world parallels to like this obsession with objects, uh, you know, this uh, obsession with uh, obsession with wealth or whatever it may be uh, that becomes kind of you know where you're pouring your soul into instead of you know be it your family or to, or to others or to service or you know any of the more positive things that we see. Um, you know, held up as, as virtues, this idea of preserving yourself in a single object is, is clearly a vice mm-hmm. in fantasy. It's like a, um, it, it's like we have opposite sides of the same coin in the elves and Sauron. The elves are also immortal, but in a completely different way for completely different reasons. Um, and we see Arwen actually give up her mortality uh, for her love for Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, the complete opposite of infusing your soul into a ring so that you can la- live forever and suck off the life of other people. Um, <laughs> so, so like, Sauron's arch nemesis is not Frodo or Aragorn. It's actually Arwen. Hmm. So there you go. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think there is, is, as long as we're discussing, like, the themes of the story, I think one of them is mortality and immortality yeah. and uh, and ways of living and ways of dying and um, and doing those, you know, either gracefully or not. We see we see a lot of deaths that are not graceful, and then we see someone's like Boromir's who is is like it's like poetic, right? Um, and that's how you want to go. If you have to go, if you can't just hop on a boat and f- float across the ocean like <laughs> you have to die, like <laughs> let, let it be like let it be like Boromir's death, and not like you know a, a ten thousand other orcs or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's all i've got all right uh, cassandra any final thoughts you want to share um i don't know i just love this movie a lot <laughs> there's i mean there's so <laughs> really there's so much to talk about as is evidenced by the fact that we're doing a podcast all about it um but i don't know it's it just strikes me how this book like the source material and even the movie like the movie just turned 15 and even now like going back through the book or watching the movie it's just so timeless almost like there's just so much to get out of it 
um, like the message of, you know, hope in times of darkness or, um, you know, teamwork or being kind to other people or just being good to the earth and not like killing it. And there's just so, I don't know, it's just so rich and it really does lay the groundwork for high fantasy and I love, like, that's my genre. So it's, it's, th- this movie and book are so important and they, they're so special and I want everyone to watch them. So go watch them. <laughs> Agreed. We haven't well, said a word. Again, we have not said a word about Aragorn hardly. Oh, uh, well, I, in my summary, I just, I just mentioned real quick. I just mentioned, oh, and also Mary Pippin. I wanted to touch on them very briefly, but Aragorn, uh, He's everything that like fantasy genre says is yeah. cool. <laughs> um, you know, he's mysterious. He's an awesome fighter. He has the immortal, uh, you know, love from another race. Like he's so cool that an elf can't help but fall in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he has multiple hero shots. Like in every fight scene, he oh, has the man. moment where like, oh, there's Aragorn doing, doing Aragorn things. He's got the hair, the hair and the beard yeah. and the grimy hands. And the opening yeah. shot when he's like he's leaning back into shadows but the pipe light is lights his lights eyes. lighting up his <laughs> eyes, just his eyes. So good. <laughs> uh, I have to say when I was a kid um, I read the book uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and in that book he talks about having like a team of people that you, like your, your he calls it your, oh my gosh, your brain trust. And it's like your team of people that you trust and you seek their advice on things. Because <laughs> I didn't really have tons of friends. <laughs> I, made, I made like my... <laughs> I, made, uh, I made like my, my mental brain trust. It was like, like at night I would lay down and I would have like conversations with people in my head. And Aragorn was on the... <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was in your brain trust. Yeah, he was sitting around the table and I'd like consult consult things with him. I was like, man, if I could, if I could just talk to anybody right now and get some advice from anybody, it would be Aragorn. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) He's the best. He's totally one of my, one of my heroes from fiction. Uh, well, okay. I just want to say Mary Pippin are awesome. I love them, but I also love that they're not just comedic relief. Like they have like real spunk Mm -hmm. to them, even though they're not, um, like they, they just go along because they say we're going this way. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go. And they're 100% invested yeah. from then on, uh, which is amazing to me. Because uh, so often when you get, you know, a, a large cast of characters, you, you'd you say, this is going to be the comic relief. And that character is just the comic relief. Um, and they are definitely the comic relief, but there's there's a lot more to them. And certainly by the end of the trilogy, they're wildly different characters than the ones that are stealing Gandalf's fireworks right. at the start of this movie. And honestly, I think Pippin is my, Pippin's oh. my favorite character oh. in the trilogy, but there isn't a lot that they do in this movie. It's more two towers and return of the King. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Todd, your story about your mental <laughs> brain trust <laughs> is a great segue to ask Cassandra the question that we ask new guests. Ooh. Um, our, our podcast, we focus on great characters mm-hmm. and great stories. And we always ask if you could have a dinner party with uh, three to five characters from fiction, be it comic books, movies, novels, whatever, what or, or who would you have uh, at a dinner party just to have some great conversation? What characters would you want uh, to invite? I thought about this for like an hour. It was really difficult, actually, because I love so many different characters. Um, but I think definitely uh, the doctor from Doctor Who. Um, Which one? 
Can I ask which one? Oh my god! <laughs> For the conversation, I I'm inclined to go with ten because ten is my doctor. Um, but just if honestly, if even if it was six, I would just be like, yeah, let's just talk about random stuff. And <laughs> um, I feel like he yes, has a lot to say. Absolutely, he'll teach me uh, really long words that I don't know the meaning of. And um, Hermione Granger is definitely on that list. Um, oh, I love Hermione. She's, she's like my hero. <laughs> I want to be Hermione when I grow up. And uh, you should put her in your brain trust. In your in your brain trust. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> She'd be like, "Raise your hand, raise your hand." I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want to. Um, let's see. I think you know the answer. <laughs> I know. I really needed her on my brain trust when I was in middle school. Um, and I think I really love Thor. But I would go with comic Thor instead of MCU Thor because as pretty as MCU Thor is, comic Thor has a lot more to say. And he says it much more Shakespearean-like. Yes. He speaks much more eloquently instead of just, you know, throwing things and punching. <laughs> um, and my underdog, it might not be really well known, but I really, really love um, the work of David Eddings. He's a fantasy writer. And he has this series called The Belgariad. And there is a, like a spy slash assassin character who's like the really quippy character and his name is Silk. And I had the biggest crush on Silk when I was reading these books and he would also be a really good conversationalist. So Silk from the Bulgariad rounds out my team. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. That sounds like a very interesting group. I love this question because yeah, we find out really so much about oh, yeah. our, our guests when we do this. And we've never had... <laughs> Never had anything remotely approaching the same from nice. any guest uh, when, when they say who, they, who, who they'd have. Uh, Cassandra, before we wrap up, could you tell our listeners where they could find Lord of the Rings Minute or any other projects that you, uh, you're you yeah, putting out absolutely. there? Yeah, um, I'm the co-host of different podcasts. I do Lord of the Rings Minute, which you can find at lordoftheringsminute.com. And I also co-host a Doctor Who podcast called The Doctor's Companion. And I write and direct and co-executive produce a fictional audio drama called Geek by Night. Um, and though you can find those on duelinggenre.com. And thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for coming well, thank on. Thank you again for coming. Yeah. Short notice. Um, yeah, it's fine. Yes. I don't have a life. All I do is watch Lord of the Rings, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're doing that podcast, I'm guessing there's yeah. a lot of watching Lord of the Rings there. <laughs> Is there, before we let you go, is there anything, if we were to talk about some other thing that you would be willing to come back on oh, and talk about? I'm actually really sad you guys talked about Catcher of the, in the Rye already, because I really like that book. Oh. Um, I don't know. I mean, besides the two towers, because for sure there's a standing invitation for when we yeah. get to the two towers. <laughs> um, if you guys... Which, at the rate we're doing Harry Potter films, <laughs> it'll be sometime middle of next year we will revisit... <laughs> Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you guys watch Doctor Who, but if you ever do a Doctor Who centric thing, that would be a lot of fun. We did a no, we, we did we've done so we far. Did oh, okay. We did Sally Sparrow, but not the Doctor, so we still need to do the nice. Doctor. Okay. Though I think also in our to do list is Vincent Van Gogh from Vincent. I love that episode so much. <laughs> <laughs> if we do that episode, we will definitely. Let yeah, you know. absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun. 
All right, listeners, that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13 and our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. Um, so you might want to just skip through those. But if you liked this episode, you might want to go and check out uh, episode number 104 when we talked about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. It seems to be a lot of crossover in uh, the genres there. Or you might want to go check out episode number four, even though I just warned you away from our first 13 <laughs> or, or dozen episodes. We did talk about The Hobbit as our first novel that we discussed. Um, links to the things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And that's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And we're all on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mac, at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Cassandra, do you have social media you want to plug real quick? Yep. Um, you can follow LOTR Minute. And my personal account is darkheartedrose. All right. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. And that is where we have the best discussions with our fans and the best feedback happens there. So we would love for you to stop by there uh, and add any comments. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you could do that. You could buy a topic for us to discuss or just show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking the support link on our homepage or going directly to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and it costs you nothing, but we get a little kickback from Amazon whenever you use that. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. I just think uh, w one of the things that I love about this story is the um, kind of you were alluding to it. Is it, a, is it an Asimov like essay by Isaac Asimov about symbolism in the Lord of the Rings or something like that? Have I completely made that up, Joe? I am not familiar with that. Uh, I so I cannot confirm nor deny the wild fancy that you have <laughs> running through your head that Asimov wrote about Lord of the Rings. Uh, if he did, I would like to read it. <laughs> I really think that he was an insightful yeah. man. I, I, <laughs> uh, I should look this up. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just gonna take one second because if it's true, like how cool, right? Asimov, Lord of the Rings essay. A reader's companion to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings by Isaac Asimov. What? Wait, it's a whole book, isn't it? Because I know he has companions yes. to the Bible and Shakespeare. <laughs> I did not do you know have he... this book, Joseph? I don't have that one. I have I his companion he... to the Bible and Shakespeare. I think you have it. Huh. I think no. I read it at your house. <laughs> That's awesome. I think um, you own this book, Joseph. I do not. Yeah. I just so, anyway, reorganized I my that, library. I, I don't own this book. <laughs>